Hi, I'm Mary Lyons, the Wealth Woman. I'm Eric Alexander with Acorn Grove. Welcome to the Big Wealth Podcast. So we have a fun sort of technical nerdy, not that all the rest of them are not nerdy, but a nerdy conversation today about kind of what's going on in the S&P 500. And we generally try to stay away from super, super topical. Here's what happened yesterday in the market news. We try to stay a little bit higher level than that. Uh, something that's a little more timeless, but there's some kind of interesting things going on. And we've seen them going on for the past couple of years, but I wanted to really highlight it today. And the thing we wanted to kind of talk about is this idea that right now, there's what they call the Magnificent Seven in the S&P 500. And we're recording this on October 17th, 2023. So this is the time frame in case you're catching this six months later. And so right now, 7% or seven stocks out of the S&P 500, out of the other 493, are driving nearly 91% of the value in the S&P 500, the returns this year. And crazy. I find that crazy. Yeah, I think we all do. Yeah, well, and it and it begs the, okay, now what though? Like every data point sort of begs a, what am I going to go do with this? Or is this just data? Well, right. And I, I think like everything we do, I mean, even though this particular topic is something that is relevant right now as we're doing the recording, it's not the first time in our history that we've seen a very small percentage of stocks driving a very large percentage of performance in an right. index. Right. And right. so when, when you think about that, this is something that even though it's topical right now, it is a recurring trend. Um, that I think we have to pay attention to because anytime we see things happening more than one year or there's a, a historical right. precedent for something happening over and over again, then we'd be silly not to pay attention to that or try to figure out ways to cope with those particular situations. And, um, you know, that the that that's been the case for a while. Right. I mean, for the past yeah. several years, you've seen most of the performance in the S&P 500 being driven by a very, very small subset of stocks. Right. And so that the natural tendency with that when you're looking at it is why would I even just buy the index then? Why wouldn't I just buy those seven stocks that are driving right. all of that performance? Because everything else is drag. Right. So can we talk for a little bit about what those stocks are doing versus what the rest of the index did if we cut those stocks out, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. So the the Magnificent Seven is sort of the new moniker for it. Uh, five minutes ago, it was called the Fang Stocks. And so the, the names keep changing. But for context, the seven stocks that we're talking about are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, uh, Meta, which is was Facebook at some point, uh, Tesla, and NVIDIA, which is a graphics card. So mm -hmm. seven stocks. And so if you look at the year-to-date performance in the S&P 500, the S&P has returned about 13%, 13.01. And if you pulled out those seven stocks, if you pulled them out of the index and you're just living with the other 493, the scrubs is what I'm going to call them, the, the lowly 493, uh, the rate of return in the S&P 500 so far this year is 1.2. Which, without the Magnificent Seven. Without the Magnificent Seven. So 1.4% of the stocks are driving 91% of the value, which is nuts. That's even beyond Pareto at that point. Right, right. So if you, and, and for those of you that don't know what Pareto is, it's the 80-20 principle. It's the idea that 20% of the 
I don't know, whatever it is, could be customers, could be stocks, Problems. could be whatever it is, but 20% of something generates 80% of the value or the return or the revenue. So right. yeah, we're way beyond that. This is a, a much smaller subset. Yeah. And and I think it begs the it begs a couple of questions. One is, and you you nailed this earlier, right? Okay, well, if if I only have to pick seven stocks and I'm getting 91% of the return in the market, why do I need the other 493 scrubs? Yeah, why do I want that drag? Right. Yeah. Well, and the and the problem is, is we have a really, really hard time with recency bias. Uh, I know you and I have had a number of conversations, I don't know, this week, it feels like. About how to help clients with that exact thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, why do I need X or Y? I'll just go dump all my money into a checking account and I'll earn four or 5%. We're like, look, that's been a thing for like five and a half seconds. Like lest right. we forget the last 15 years when you were earning. We couldn't do that. Yeah. When a mattress pad or a hole in the backyard was a, a really viable economic opportunity at that point. <laughs> right. So, but if you look at those seven stocks and you look at those in 2022, right. Cause you, you mentioned this and you're right. The, those seven stocks or some version of those seven have been fairly concentrated for a while now. Like they, they've been driving a lot of value. But last year, if you average up all the losses that those seven stocks took, the average loss across those that group of stocks was about 44% in 2020. Which was way worse in 22 than what the entire index did. Yeah, way more than double, right? right. And so it's, I think that knee-jerk reaction to, well, the index sucks, the market sucks, I'm just going to buy the seven and move on. It sounds smart until you forget that you've been alive longer than five minutes and that there's some context behind that. Right. And that you, if you had only had those last year, you would have been in a totally different situation and there, you wouldn't even be approaching recovery yet at this point, you'd still be yeah, behind because of the volatility. And, and I think this is a really key point too, because, you know, one of the things that comes up from time to time, and I think this is a question that lots of people have is, should I just buy the index and see what happens? Or should I actually hire a money manager? And I think some of this comes down to your own risk tolerance and your preference. But I do think understanding what you're getting when you buy an index versus what you're getting when you're working with a money manager is an important part of this overall conversation. Because what happens with an index is, you're buying all 500 of the largest company's stocks essentially in the United States. And so when you think about what that happens, at least 50% of those are in the bottom half of performance. And you're saying, I want all By of definition. them. I'll take the overachievers and the underachievers together. And you're also saying like, I've got a stomach for a ride that could be insanely volatile at different points in time. I mean, go back to 2007 to 2009. And if you go peak performance to the bottom of the trough, there's a 55% plus loss over that time period. And so it's really easy to say, I'm just going to buy the index and I'm going to write it out. But in the middle of those losses, that's not what most people do. And so when you start looking right. at studies that have been released, like the Dalbar study, for example, which I think we've talked about on previous episodes, yeah. what it shows is that most people consistently underperform what's happening in the market because they try and time it. So they take some losses, they get nervous, they pull the money out, and then they miss the recovery. And so off to the races, right? And right. and I think you have to remember too, that how money is going to behave 
while you're accumulating it and how it behaves while you're trying to spend it are also two very different things. So we're talking specifically to accumulation right now. For sure. What you get when you are hiring a money manager, because people are always like, you know, well, what am I going to pay them for if they aren't going to drive additional performance? It depends on how you define performance because they may not outperform any given index but if they keep you invested and you aren't trying to time the market and getting out and getting in at exactly the wrong time periods and you stay invested for the long haul, then there is a possibility that over time you might actually do better. Not that you're going to outperform the market, but that you would outperform your other self which would freak out and take money out and then put it back in because there's nobody helping you make those decisions or advising caution or making recommendations during that time period. So, you know, part of what I think you're actually paying for when you hire a money manager uh, is a coach to some degree Therapist. and then somebody who can help maybe smooth the ride a little bit so that, yeah, you may not have those crazy high returns in a given year, but you aren't taking losses that are making you want to throw up along the ride either. And if you right. can stay on the ride, that is half the battle. Well, and I, and I think you nailed it, right? That the idea of the coach and the therapist and the uh, don't jump off the cliff just yet, uh, I think is a huge component of it. Because if you are, I think if you want to be, if you really have ice in your veins, really and truly do. I don't either. And I, and I don't know that many people that actually do. There, there's a few, right? Okay, go buy the index. You got this because if you can really stomach the ride and leave it alone, okay, fine. Like go, go do it. Right. But most people don't have that level of, of intestinal fortitude, right. Yeah. That, there you that go. Will. And so I think that's that part of it is helping you have context in the moment because we're working with some clients right now and it's like, wow, the market, the market's up X, I'm up Y, what the heck's going on? Right. And that can be good and bad. What the heck's going on? This is amazing. What the heck's going on? This is bad. Right. Sure. Um, and it's like, well, your your mileage may vary depending on your goals and depending on what you're trying to go do. Well, and your risk tolerance and the allocation right. and which money managers are managing the assets. So in a situation like this where you see most of the performance being driven by a small group, I think it's important to understand, okay, now that we have isolated that data, what the heck are we supposed to do with it? Um, and I think this is this market in and of itself is really challenging for a lot of people, whether you're a consumer or whether you're an advisor. This right. is a challenging market, in part because it is radically different than anything that has happened in recent history. And so when you start looking at this and you're trying to figure out how can I drive some performance here and not just totally redline the car and get into this, you know, I'm swerving left, I'm swerving right, I can't, I can't manage where we're actually going. How do you actually start to look at things in a different way or what questions could you be asking that might lead to different choices from an investment perspective? Yeah, and I and I think outside of the knee jerk, I think there's actually some really important questions that you could ask on that side of it. And again, and we we haven't said this enough probably in the last five and a half seconds, uh, but our mission here today is not advice. Our mission here is sort education. Of yeah, education, some insights, some questions to ask. And so some of the things that we've been doing research around are maybe alternative managers, alternative funds that you can get into that are maybe playing a different game. You know, one of the so challenges- So could you give 
Could you give an example of what that might look like? Yeah. So, you know, one of the alternative managers that we work with, uh, they've got a suite of things that they do. And so I'm just going to describe sort of one strategy. And so some of the things that they're doing is looking at sort of options on uh, the Bitcoin market. The Bitcoin market is all over the place. And that's crazy if you're in it, but if you're on the outside of it and you're making bets on whether it's going to go up or down and can win in both of those environments, then it could be a really neat way to get what I would call base hit money. Like you're not mm -hmm. looking for, I bought something for $10 and I sold it for a thousand. You're looking for recurring revenue. You're looking for easy base hits without a lot of drama, right? Mm -hmm. And so playing different parts of the market. Another example might be um, catastrophic coverage on certain things. So uh, if you're an insurance company and you're worried about a tornado coming in and wiping out some small town in Texas, right? Well, every month, every year that it doesn't wipe out that small town, you get to take revenue. There, There's premiums that come in that you get to go take and you build that up and you come in and swoop in when it's when it happens and you pay out a lot of money. But for a long time, you're just collecting revenue. So it's mm -hmm. just different alternative ways to go do the market. Sometimes they'll buy real estate, right? They and they don't need they're not buying Trump Tower in New York because they want some big rate of return. They're buying single family homes and a lot of them in order to just make rents. Mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of these alternative managers are looking for, it's not necessarily equity market, not necessarily bonds. They're looking for ways to make base hits that are non-correlated. And that's really well, the key. And everything that you just described is focused on income not necessarily on appreciation, although Correct. some of them have opportunities for appreciation. But I think this kind of goes back to an overarching philosophy, which you and I talk about a lot, which right. is that you have to be focused on income creation because net worth is just a, a number on a piece of paper and doesn't necessarily translate to lifestyle. And so the thing that is kind of a common thread in everything you said is that the priority is income first, appreciation second. And, and this is right. where kind of going back to the overarching stock market, if you're just buying an index, you are making a bet that the value of companies is going to grow over a period of time. And historically, that has always been true in the United States. But if you look at other indexes outside of the United States, the there have been decades upon decades of stagnation or even going the opposite direction um, of losses. And so, you know, we have this sort of... Um, Again, maybe it's a recency thing, but I think some of it is just pride in country, yeah. right? That we're always going to continue to grow and make things better. But the beauty of doing things where you're focused on the income creation in general is that if you have a deployment of capital and you get income back, at some point that income has given you back everything you put in. Now you're playing with house money because right. you've recouped your capital and any growth on top of that is golden versus if you put your money into a stock and you were just hoping for appreciation or an index and you were just hoping for appreciation, you only actually realize that whenever you eventually sell it. And so that combination of income first, appreciation second doesn't mean you negate appreciation. It just means that you're shifting the priority so that you are constantly getting as much of your money off the table as possible so right. that you can redeploy it into another avenue that creates additional income. And I think for most people, that is a very different thought process than the way they have been taught to think about money. Yeah. And it, and it also points to another philosophical bent that we have is, and we had this conversation earlier too, is 
I don't know what the market's going to give me. I don't want, I don't know what life is going to give me, right? Life has a tendency to come at us in some oblique angle that we haven't thought of and and we get hit by unintended consequences. Right? But every single thing that we're doing for clients, every single thing that we sort of preach and advocate for and everywhere else is I want to win in as many possible circumstances as humanly possible. I don't want the only angle, the only path that we win is if everything works out in a pretty line and a pretty straight line. Because that's not how everyone's all. Yeah, that's not how my life has been. That's not how life tends to work (laughs) out. And so that idea of, and and we've talked about this before, not just diversification of manager or index, but diversification of strategy and -hmm. looking for alternative ways to go and not alternatives in the go buy alternative stocks, but different ways to go build and return profiles that aren't all predicated on everything being how you would like it to be. Right. And the, and the challenge with that, and it goes back to that steely eyed investor that I think is an avatar that doesn't actually exist is that doesn't always work out that well, but what it means is you have to be the investor that says, I'm not looking for 30% every single day, every single month, because you're just going to end up disappointed. You're happy every once in a while, but it's, it's sporadic. But I want to have the one that's happy most often and as many different situations as possible. Well, honestly, this reminds me a little bit of the Aesop's fable with the tortoise, the tortoise and the hare. Yep. Right. You you aren't just looking to like sprint and get ahead. It it actually makes sense for you to be very deliberate and make ongoing process or progress. And I think that um I'm going to botch this quote and I'm probably not even going to try and get the quote right. But I read something recently that said that you overestimate what you can do in a day and people have a tendency to underestimate what they can do in a year. Right. Yeah. And so you think think about just trying to hit some like grand slam all of a sudden and then be done and you don't have to think about it anymore. That's kind of the overestimating what you can do in a day. Not that that you couldn't get lucky and make it happen. But if you're very steady and you are focused on, I'm going to make progress, make progress, make progress, you don't have to get it perfectly right. It's just the fact that you're moving in the right direction. And at some point you're going to look up and see just how far you've actually come. And I think yeah. that, that that to me, when I think about what's happening is that it doesn't mean get out of the market right now because who knows what the heck's going to happen. And it doesn't mean move everything that you have an index to the seven stocks that are driving performance. I mean, you might overweight them a little bit or not, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But I do think that having the conversation of what direction are we moving in and are the tools we're using actually advancing that is really important. And if the current allocation in your portfolio isn't doing what you think it should be doing, then the questions you should be asking are, where else can I find yield if I also need safety? And, right. and when you start asking those questions, um, I would go so far as to say, if your advisor doesn't have some ideas, that in and of itself is cause for concern because it should never be throw the baby out with the bathwater, scrap it. We're just going to change direction completely. But the strategy your advisor is recommending should evolve with the environment that you're in, because there are times where... Right. It makes sense to take a calculated risk so you can take advantage of specific conditions and times where you should be looking at how you can approach things from a a more conservative standpoint. And that adjustment, none of us can predict what the market's going to do, but we should be responding to what the market has done. 
Right. And it brings up two other questions, I think, that that could help when you're having those conversations. One is what we call the chemistry equation. Um, and this is this is a conversation we have a lot with one of the managers who, that we work with of maybe it's time to change the chemistry equation of where I'm getting returns or all my returns on I'm going to buy something for ten dollars and sell it for a thousand or do I also have some things built in my portfolio where I don't really need the market to go up? I'm just getting dividends and growth, right? So that's a conversation of how the portfolio is sort of tilted. And then the other conversation is, are there strategies out there? And we've talked about this in some other podcasts. Are there strategies out there that I can go after the index and put it all in? But are there ways to go get that return profile, but add in some buffer so that if it if it doesn't quite go well, if it doesn't quite move in the direction that I want it to go do, do I have the ability to build in some safety given where the market is? I mean, it's a, it's a fairly tumultuous time. Uh, I don't, we had this conversation yesterday with a friend of mine. I have no idea why the market's up 13%. None of it makes sense to me at this point. The market should not be this high. Um, so how do we build in some buffer in case we come crashing back down a little bit, but we want to protect right. it? Well, and I think too, if you look at some of the um, some of the companies that we're seeing like rapid growth in for this year, I think the sudden sort of obsession with AI is driving some of that. And in some yeah. ways, it is reminiscent of early tech boom days, where who knows whether this is going to be viable or not viable and in, in which capacity. But right now, it's cool and sexy. And there are always going to be people that capitalize on that at any given moment in time. And I, I think I'm going to add this one thing, and then I think we can wrap it up. The other thing that I think you really have to be aware of is what I would call market frenzies. And if you think about where there was a big market frenzy recently, it was um, all of the cryptocurrencies. And you saw people going in full bore and then the market bursts, right? We saw that with the tech bubble way back in the day. If you look at what happened with uh, real estate over the kind of the COVID time period, you saw people getting really, really into that. And then right now you read a lot of articles about people trying to offload vacation rentals that aren't profitable right. anymore. And so I think as you're approaching it, it doesn't mean don't play in the bubble. It just means recognize that it could be a bubble and make your decisions with that context in mind. And I think if you are thinking through those things and then asking your advisor those questions and finding other people who are kind of investing in similar spaces, that you can learn a lot and make really intelligent decisions and not be caught up in uh, the FOMO aspect of this. Because the reality wow. is there's always going to be another deal. The deal that you're looking at, whether it's buying a stock or a piece of real estate or a private equity deal, whatever it is you're looking at, there's right. always going to be another deal. Yeah. And, we, and we've talked about that. And I'll end with this, the, the idea of core and explore. And if you're not sure if something that you're about to invest in is core or explore, the easy way to know is if you have FOMO. If right. you have FOMO for the deal, it's explore. It's not core. Right. Right. And so build that first before you explore. Right. Perfect. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. If you're looking for Eric, Eric, where can they find you? At Economics with Eric, wherever you use social media. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at The Wealth Woman. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.